0: Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Go check out whatsnextevent.com to find out more about this conference that we're going to be putting on. It'd be great if everybody could sign up. That would be really cool. Um, I'll tell you more about that later. Um, today's episode is brought to you by the letter Z. No, uh, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Lucy nicotine gum, not my daughter, uh, from by express VPN, uh, Jeffrey Tubin's favorite, uh, VPN service and by the Bradley uh speakers series more about all those guys and a little bit so yeah it's friday um i know i always say i'm exhausted but by the end of the day on friday i'm almost always exhausted um you know i you know i always said that i knew this dispatch stuff was going to be a lot of work in theory and then it turned out that it was work in reality and um and each week gets pretty grueling, particularly when you add in all of my daughter's college craziness. And um, I had a recent bout of diverticulitis, so I'm on antibiotics, which is why if you watched the Dispatch Live event, which you should have, which was fun, uh, you would have seen me look all sweaty and flustered. Antibiotics tend to do that to me, um, particularly when I'm up past my bedtime. So where to begin? Um, Let's talk about the debate a little bit. I know we talked about it on the Dispatch Live thing, but let's assume that for reasons having to do with original sin, some of you didn't actually listen to that. Uh, I scored it as Trump basically winning. Um, And I don't mean, you know, it's it's really kind of amazing, and I shouldn't find it amazing at this point, how so many people immediately assume (laughs) that if I say something positive about Trump, that means I've gone MAGA or I'm carrying water for him. And just if you think for two seconds about how I've sort of held my line for, uh, for over four years that somehow in the final stretch of the campaign, when it looks like he's about to lose, I would finally say, ah, screw it and put on my red MAGA hat. Uh, no, I think, you know, the way you score these things isn't on who lied more or who made better arguments. Um, I mean, you can do that. And I, I think that's perfectly legitimate to point that stuff out. I think Trump lied a lot. I think Biden lied a few times and, you know, particularly some big ones, um, that in a normal presidential debate would actually have been a much bigger deal. But, you know, when all the oxygen gets sucked out, um, by, you know, all this Trump stuff, it, it, everything gets kind of mixed metaphors horribly. Everything gets, gets graded on a curve. Um, you know, and that's one of my complaints about all these people just going ballistic about what they think is Joe Biden's terrible character or his deceitfulness, all of which on the merits are perfectly defensible. But, um, if you haven't been saying any of that kind of stuff about Trump for the last four years, it's just kind of hard to, um, take it seriously. And I don't want to engage too much about it because it's almost, if I do, it's indistinguishable from whataboutism and that's just boring. Um, no. So anyway, I think, I think Trump won in the sense, or I thought Trump won and now it looks like the polling says He didn't. And I'm not sure that is dispositive the way some people do because, you know, this late in a race when opinions are so well formed, huge chunks of the people who say Biden won are saying Biden won because they want Biden to have won and they like Biden and don't like Trump and vice versa. Um, And so, I mean, some of the focus group type stuff is more interesting if people went in undecided and um, concluded that. Trump one or Biden one, I think that's a little more meaningful, but I also find focus groups of undecided people to be incredibly annoying for reasons I've written about a bunch. Anyway, I I think you go into these debates, the smartest way to score this, and this is something that Sarah Isger talks about, is what was the strategy going in and did they accomplish it? And, um, and assuming that the strategy was smart, right? I mean, like, the the strategy in the first debate for Trump was to presumably fluster Biden so much that Biden had some sort of viral meltdown moment that would crowd out the other 89 minutes of the debate if that was the strategy Trump failed um and it, and you can decide on a separate track on whether or not it was a smart strategy like if it had succeeded i think people would have thought oh it was a smart strategy um But, uh, you know, be that as it may last night, um, Trump needed to sound more reassuring, more confident, more competent. Um, he needed to, um, not be rude the way he was the last time. And while he was rude by normal standards, he was, um, downright gracious by Trumpian standards and certainly by the standard of the last debate of the first debate, um, And I think the mute button, as I've been saying on this podcast and elsewhere for a while now, the mute button is Trump's friend, not his enemy. Any artificial constraints on Trump's natural instincts tend to be to his benefit, not to his detriment. The the people, and I've written a bunch about this, the people who constantly say, let Trump be Trump, are his worst enemies. The people who say, oh yeah, just keep flinging monkey poo through your bars the bars of your cage, that's great, um, are the ones who have got Trump in this place where he's never gotten above 50%, um, in, in polling, in approval. Excuse me. So, uh, I think Trump accomplished what he needed to, well, I, I needed to accomplish. Trump accomplished what he could accomplish, what he wanted to accomplish. It was a strong night for him in that sense. And I don't think the sort of scoring that says, well, the majority of people said they'd like Biden means very much because the strategy for Trump is not to like win over the American people. That ship has sailed. The strategy for Trump going into that was to win over any conceivable voters who might still be winnable or win overable or whatever. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there probably not enough of them, but there are still in sort of absolute terms, a lot of people out there, many of them are friends of mine, who really, 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 really really don't want to vote for Joe Biden. And they'd rather not, you know, throw their vote away, which I don't believe they'd be doing if they didn't vote for either of them, which is what I'll be doing. Um, But uh, they need permission. They need something to hang um, their decision to vote for Trump again or for the first time um and or to vote against biden and i think that uh trump did a pretty good job of providing some of that it doesn't you know so i mean all the other ways of grading it are interesting we can have those debates but i think it at, on net it was a win for him i don't think it was a huge loss for biden um i think there're also a lot of gettable voters out there who may not be voting at all but Um, wanted to be reassured about Biden. I thought, I I mean, I I have a pretty well-established opinion about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So, you know, what persuades other people is is more mysterious to me. But I think that, you know, uh, I think if you actually bought all the Biden is obviously senile and has one foot in the grave and is not mentally competent to be president, you were probably pretty reassured by last night. Um, He, yeah, he got tired at the end and all of that. But I don't think you could look at that Joe Biden or the Joe Biden from the first debate and say, um, oh my gosh, this guy is going to be, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the guy. There was a Star Trek where like a parallel Earth had gone full Nazi. And there was a puppet who was like a former member of the Federation was this old guy that they would just shoot up with drugs long enough to give rousing little testimonials to the people and then they would shut him down again. Um, uh, anyway, the idea that somehow, you know, he would need someone to feed him soup while he wore a bib, I think that's gone and that was good for him. And, and so, you know, I don't think Biden really lost, but Trump on his terms had a win. Um, where I really disagree with a lot of people like Hugh Hewitt or, you know, Megan Kelly, who I'm a big fan of, um, Megan had this tweet where he said, where she said that, um, Trump, I, I'm quoting from memory, so I'm butchering it, but the gist of it was Trump uh, did what he had to do. It was a w- solid win at just the moment he needed it most. And again, I kind of scored it the same way, but the idea that he did it when he needed it most, I think is just wrong. Um, if he had been this Trump in the first debate, uh, I'd, you know, I still think Biden would probably be leading, but the race would have tightened more and it would have created a better narrative for Trump. Um, some 50 million people, give or take, have voted already. Now, a lot of those votes weren't going to be moved one way or the other. Um, but, you know, by last night's debate, but we're within two weeks of the election. And for Trump to have his this was the moment he became president moment, two weeks before an election, is not when he needed to do it most. Uh, If he had been this Trump when he got uh, coronavirus, could have helped him a lot. If he had been this Trump ever since the coronavirus pandemic broke out, it would have helped him enormously. I don't think that he can sustain that Trump for more than two hours. Uh he didn't really or 90 minutes. He didn't really stay that guy till the end, but he opened that guy. Uh, you know, it's important to remember that whether they're Democrats or Republicans, uh virtually every governor in the United States got a major COVID bounce when they took the pandemic seriously. It's like a rally around the flag effect. Trump had one very, very briefly and he squandered it by using those COVID press conferences as uh, you know, he called it free media and then he would go on these stem winders and attack the press and talk about Mueller and whatever, and not actually convey that he was taking things seriously, which was a disaster for him. And it was also scandalous and outrageous and reprehensible and shows how he's unfit for office and all that. But you know where I stand on all that. Um, you know, Angela Merkel, (laughs) she's turned herself around on the polls entirely because she took coronavirus seriously. And so the, anyway, the idea that like last night was the moment you know, the, the in the ninth inning when he, you know, hit the home run that turned things around. Any suggestion of that, I think, is ridiculous. And I'm not saying that Megyn Kelly was in fact saying that, but she was saying that. You know, this was the moment he needed to do it most. That's the wrong way to think about it. This was his last chance to do something like this, and he did it. But it, I, my hunch is, is it's it's way too late. Um, but you know, time will tell. Um, other than that, I think the, the debate. Like most presidential debates, won't change very much. We might see a one or two day bounce or fluctuation in the polls one way or the other. I have no idea how to predict that. Um, But since there was nothing particularly useful to either of them that will be replayed over and over and over and over again, or particularly damaging to either of them that will be replayed over and over and over again, um, this will just get memory hold like almost everything else does these days, and we'll just move on. So um, what else? I I won't cannibalize too much of the G file, which I wrote today on how everyone's got 2016 on the brain. Um, I have kind of like this theory that um, the shock of Trump's victory in 2016 um, broke a lot of people and not in the way that like jackwads on Twitter tell me every time I criticize Trump that Trump broke me. I mean that it was so shocking and so many people thought it was impossible, both fans and foes alike, that um, it kind of threw everybody off of uh, their axis. And when you add in the more important point that Trump himself was shocked that he won and has never, de- has, has, and has never pivoted to being presidential he has kept us in that 2016 mode for four years, which has kept us even janglier, right? There's this whole, you know, uh, sense that um, that election night never really ended because Trump has been doing fan service for his base and playing the same games that he played four years ago when he got elected nonstop ever since. And so, uh, you know, Trump is stuck in this weird, Time hiccup where he is just replaying his sort of his his twenty sixteen plays over and over and over again people are replaying their twenty sixteen arguments over and over again about how you know the the polls were wrong you know that's what you know all these kinds of things um they seem to think that twenty sixteen will just simply repeat itself and again i i think it's a pretty good g file but I won't belabor it um whenever I think. I hey, I think it's a pretty good G file. It turns out that people hate it, so who knows? Um, but um, you know, the one point, you know, the one point about polling that I think is important to make because you hear it all the time is you know, well, the polls were wrong in 2016. You know, uh David Harsanyi hit a perfectly fine post at the corner the other day about um how Trump is overperforming where Hillary was at the at this time in 2016 in various swing states, right? Hillary was leading better in the polls than than, uh, Biden is now in a couple swing states. Um, It's interesting. But, you know, and I hear this kind of thing, I don't want to pick on David, because you hear it all over the place from liberals and conservatives alike. You either hear it with reasons for hope or reasons for panic. And the thing that people just don't, I don't think really connect the dots on is that you know, put aside the fact that the polling really wasn't that wrong in 2016. the the final national a- the final average of national polls had it had Hillary winning by like 3.1 or something, and she ended up winning the popular vote, vote by like 2.7. You know, it's very within the margin of error. The to the extent that the polling was wrong in 2016, it was um, wrong in a ha- in a, just a couple uh, battleground state polls. And, and even in most, in most state polls, the polling turned out to be pretty accurate. But um, to the extent that it was wrong, like in Wisconsin and in a few other places, the reason for it was that pollsters, and they all admit this, pollsters didn't have in their models enough non-college educated whites. And all of them, because they've all taken it in the neck, uh, for four years about having been, been wrong, even though those claims are wildly exaggerated, uh, they've changed their screens. They've changed the, their, their base assumptions about what the electorate will look like. And so when, um, uh, people say, oh, sorry, Steve Hayes is texting me, um, when people say, oh, look, you know, Trump's doing better in the same polls that were wrong in 2016, um, they don't take into account that the pollsters have tried to fix precisely why the polls went wrong in 2016. And so the polls could still be wrong. I mean, I mean, odds are the polls will be wrong to one extent or another. The only question is how wrong, um, because it's not that exact science, but if they're wrong, It is improbable that they'll be wrong for the exact same reasons that they were wrong in 2016. Um, And this just sort of gets to this larger point about how it's not 2016. It's just not. You know, when Trump was running in 2016, he could be kind of all things to all people. I knew conservatives who thought he was a social conservative. I knew conservatives who believed he really was this brilliant manager. I knew conservatives who believed he'd be a moderate Republican because he used to give to Democrats and that he used to be, you know, pro-choice and all these kinds of things. There were all sorts of things that people believed about Donald Trump. And there was enough evidence to hang all your beliefs on them, even though they were contradicted by the things that other people believed about him. It was, you know, he was, as I say in the g file, he was sort of like a, the, Max Weber's idea of a charismatic leader, which doesn't mean charming. It means, um, that you imbue in them special qualities that you don't imbue in normal people, sort of like what they did with Obama. And one of the features of being a charismatic leader is that you are kind of all, you can be seen as a different kind of leader to different groups of your followers. You know, FDR was great about this kind of stuff. A bunch of, you know, the Southerners thought he was with them. The, the Northern liberals thought he was with them. Um, and you know, Barack Obama, there were all these liberal moderate liberals and moderate Republicans who thought he was one of them. And there were all these hardcore left-wingers who thought he was one of them. The thing is that once you become president, you can't keep being all things to all people, even in your own coalition, because you've got to make choices. you got to actually govern. And, um, So whatever you think about Donald Trump's governing, the one thing I think everybody now has a pretty firm grasp on, which they didn't have in 2016, is what kind of president Donald Trump would be, because he's been president for four years, or at least he's had the job. And so you can't, the idea of replaying the outsider challenger strategy that worked effectively against Hillary Clinton, who felt like an incumbent, who felt like Um, basically an an extension of uh, the Obama years against Joe Biden, it just doesn't work the same way. People don't hate Joe Biden the way they hated Hillary Clinton. There are all sorts of things. We didn't have a pandemic. You know, there are all sorts of things, good and bad, that didn't happen in 2016 to inform our opinions because they hadn't happened yet. And this idea that somehow 2016 is the best year to understand what twenty twenty voting patterns will be like is really, really weird to me. I mean it's sort of like and I know there's some basis for some of these kinds of things, but you know when you get these uh sports book you know gambling addict guys who talk about what Dallas did against you know Washington in twenty ten um and that for that should therefore that should inform. You about how to bet on how they're going to perform in Washington in 2020? Um, maybe there are some valid reasons to think in those terms, but they can't be that many, given that basically the entirety of both teams are going to be different players um, in 2020 than they were in 2010. We don't have completely different players than we did in 2016. You know, Donald Trump is running for reelection, but the the value that we assign the variable of Donald Trump's name is completely different than it was in 2016, because we now actually know how he's going to go around presidenting. Um, look, I'm, I'm sorry if I sound a little wound up. I did have a cigar earlier and I am trying to cut back on cigars. Um, and, uh, one really crucial tool for doing that is Lucy. And again, not my daughter. Uh, Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. Each and every flavor actually tastes great. I can say that about the wintergreen. I, I haven't tried the pomegranate yet. I'm not a huge pomegranate fan, but I'll give it a try. And it's convenient and it's discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, even in the gym. Um, and I'll tell you, I've, I have I, I I used it the other day. I had to do a long interview and it was like too early to smoke a cigar. And again, I'm trying to cut back. And so um, I got that little nicotine hit that helps you sort of get rid of that headache and give you that little concentration boost. Um, I'm not condoning this for people who don't have issues with nicotine. You know, you don't, if you don't need it, don't do it. But if, if, if you're, if, if you're the kind of person who this is right for, then this is right for you. So it's 2020, get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. So remnant listeners can go to Lucy.co, not com, co, Lucy, L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including all the gums and lozenges. That's Lucy.co, promo code DINGO at checkout. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. That's true. Lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code D-I-N-G-O. We thank Lucy for advertising on today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so another reason why I'm a little amped up um, is because it's Friday and I really need the weekend, but also because I was listening to the editor's podcast on the drive, um, back from the office and, um, um, and I'm a big fan of the editor's podcast. All the guys on it are obviously friends of mine, former colleagues of mine. And I usually agree with, you know, 90% of what they say, at least when they all agree basically on something. Um, you know, sometimes there are internal debates among, among them, and then I'll pick and choose. Sometimes I'm with Charlie, sometimes I'm with Rich or whatever. Um, and this was recorded two days ago. So, you know, some news hadn't dropped yet and all the rest, but basically I really disagree with them on most of how they were approaching the issue of this Hunter Biden laptop thing. Um, I agree. Let me say up front, I agree with them largely, not entirely, but largely on, um, their media criticism stuff. I think that Biden is not well served by, um, and the country is not well served by a media that is clearly animated, at least in part by a desire to protect Joe Biden from, from losing and to make sure that Trump loses. And I think that's definitely going on. I think like the piling up on Maggie Haberman For linking to the initial New York Post story, um, even though she was critical of it, was ridiculous. And it really showed the um the 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 psychological obsessions of a lot of of sort of blue check mark liberals. Um and uh I do think that it is there's nothing wrong with asking Joe Biden about this stuff. I think when the CBS reporter asked Biden about it, and Biden attacked the CBS reporter, and no one was like appalled um, in the media by Biden's behavior, uh, is, is, is pretty damning, certainly hypocritical given the, the, the caterwauling and rending of cloth and gnashing of teeth about Trump's attacks on the media for the last four years. Um, it was a perfectly legitimate thing to ask about. Um, so I agree with all that at the same time, as I wrote in my column, and I, I, let me let me back up. So I wrote my column uh it came out today. This is the syndicated column that appears at the Dispatch. Um I hate writing columns on subjects that it's hard to explain mental states, but that I don't want to write about. And uh usually I can, you know, um, sacrifice enough chickens to ball to get the inspiration for the column I do want to write about but you know the the deadline doesn't move while you play hamlet trying to figure out what to write about and on thursday afternoon you know time was wasting i didn't have much time and the only thing that i and there was the added problem that you know it always sucks trying to write right before some news event is going to Either um, uh, change the known facts, or change the national conversation, or make what you're writing about seem really old. And so, writing before the debate, when you don't know what's going to hap- happen in the debate, is just a huge drag. And but I anyway, I settled on writing about the Biden thing and the the laptop story. And uh, and then you know I get home. I, th- I, I thought it was, it was interesting. I write the thing. I sent it, I was, you know, because I haven't had a granular, um, obsession about every detail in this story. I was worried that, um, I might've missed something. So I sent it to, to Steve and to David French. David couldn't look at it and saying, Hey, is there anything I'm missing? And, and just to give you some background, I mean, I rarely do this with my, I'd say I do this maybe once every two months with a column. If I'm just like not confident about what I'm, what I'm writing. I'll send it to somebody, usually just my wife, but, um, Steve wrote back saying, I don't think I've ever disagreed with you more about, about something like this. And he made a bunch of points. I agreed with a lot of them, um, disagreed with a few anyway. So I reworked my column a bit. Some of it was really, you know, some of the problems that he had with it had less to do with a a real disagreement and more to do with the fact that I was pulling teeth, trying to write about something I didn't want to write about and so it wasn't as focused as it could be but i ended up feeling fine about the column and i sent it out and then i get home and of course this guy um god what's his name budolinsky i'll look it up hold on um um anyway this guy who worked with hunter biden while well, i look for this name um i was going to give this uh press conference and um and i was like oh, crap this is going to this is going to change the whole uh story we're going to get new information all this kind of stuff and um it turns out rereading it this morning i was hugely relieved i mean, i almost thought about saying you know can we spike the column but that that doesn't work cuz it goes out to hundreds of newspapers so uh my basic disagreement with the editors guys is at least from the part, that, what I heard about, they were wrapping up the conversation when I got out of the car. So, but first of all, they all think, as do most of my friends at National Review and most of my friends on the right, it's just patently insane to think that there's any Russian involvement in this, or that this is a Russian fabrication. And um, so I'll start there. I don't think it's a Russian fabrication in the sense that it is at this point pretty much well established that I think it's entirely not even possible. I think it's true as best we can tell that at least some of the contents in the hard drive are authentic, um, insofar as, you know, there's been separate reporting that backs it up, um, that confirms some of it. And, um, if it were wholly a fabrication, uh, I do think that the Biden team would just come out and say, this is all made up and they haven't done that. I don't think that the Biden's refusal, the Biden team's refusal to deny the allegations quite means the same thing that the, the, the guys at the editors think it means or that virtually every voice on Fox News right now thinks it means, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, that's not really the issue. The issue is not fabrication. The issue is whether or not There is fake information, or misleading information, or uh, manipulated information, i.e., disinformation. That is what they call salted amidst the real stuff. That's what sophisticated disinformation operations do. That's what they did to in France against Macron. That's 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 how you make it seem real: is you put a few of the Fugazi diamonds amidst all the real diamonds, and um, and so I, I, I think that a lot of people are missing that point. Now, do I actually think that this is a Russian disinformation operation? I would bet against it. I, I don't put a lot of credibility in, in, in that. Um, but I don't think it's as outlandish as, as a bunch of people are saying, when you have Rudy Giuliani basically admitting that he was being spoon fed crap from uh, You know, uh, some sort of cutout from Russia intelligence. The idea that you can just say, "Oh, this is you know, you're you know, you're you know, some John Bircher for thinking that the Russians might have something to do with it." I I just don't know that that's um that's fair. But am I deeply skeptical that that's what happened? Yeah. Um. At least until proven otherwise, um, I'll be less shocked than the people who are saying, you know, you're a, you're a fool if you think it's even possible. Um, but I also still find the the story about how they got the hard drive, about how uh, they got a copy of the hard drive. You've got to remember that the, the FBI has the real laptop. What Giuliani gave to the New York Post is an alleged copy of the hard drive. Um, now I kind of assume that the, at the end of the day, the copy will match what's on the FBI hard drive and, you know, and that it will turn out that it's not Russian disinformation. But I also really wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that the laptop was in some way stolen and planted at the repair shop. Uh, I just find the whole story about how that happened just sketchy enough not to say, oh, that makes sense, right? Um, But the bigger point, uh, which is what I sort of focused on the column, and what is kind of driving me a little nuts... Is that, and this, and this is where I think the media is doing a disservice, is that, uh, the, the people who think this is all real, right? Sorab and the guys at the New York Post and most of the people at Fox and, um, my friends at National Review, they think the, they think this is legitimate and therefore this is a big scandal. And I'm totally down with the idea that it's a scandal, um, uh it's not clear to me that it's a big scandal and it's not clear to me yet that it really touches Joe Biden in any way. Um, Because, first of all, if if you listen to, say, Laura Trump, who was on Fox News last night and she was interviewed by Brett and Martha McCallum and she said at least three times by my count that this is proof that Joe Biden used his office When he was vice president, to personally enrich himself. Now, um, that's not true. At least that's not true going by the actual contents of these text messages and of these emails. These emails are from 2017. Joe Biden was not vice president in 2017. Um, And the Trump campaign wants everyone to believe that this is about something Joe Biden did in office the same way Hillary Clinton did something in office when she set up the server. It's not. At least it's not according to the evidence they are hyping and providing. Joe Biden was a private citizen in 2017. And while it is unseemly for politicians to leave office and then cash out, particularly cash out from foreign governments, particularly bad foreign governments like China. There's also no evidence in these emails that, he, that Joe Biden, in fact, did that. There is evidence that Hunter Biden was trying to sell influence or sell the illusion of influence with his own last name to a bunch of suckers who seem to have thought that um, getting the inside track with Joe Biden would give them a lot of pull with the Trump administration which is a really weird thing to think but lots of foreign governments because they are run by these incestuous cabals of different cliques of elites who who trade positions and never really give up of their give up their own little fiefdoms there are lots of people in 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 banana stands of one kind or another and including China who might honestly think that, oh, my gosh, if we got Joe Biden involved in this, that would, you know, that would clear all sorts of hurdles. But that's not actually how it necessarily works in the United States when you get the former vice president of the opposite party that is controlling the government. But whatever, there's still there's no evidence that Joe Biden went along with this. Um, I should say there's no persuasive evidence. I mean, you could enter this stuff in a court of law and ask a jury to make inferences about it. But there's nothing in the emails that suggests that Joe Biden condoned this, supported this, uh, uh, participated in this. There is evidence that Hunter Biden was trying to trade on his name. We know he does that. There is evidence that he was maybe trying to suggest that his dad would be in on it. But, you know, people were mocking the idea that Joe Biden released his tax returns as evidence that he had nothing to do with this and didn't enrich himself off this stuff. Um, I don't think it's all that mockable. If he made the kind of money that, um, you know, the Trump world is alleging and didn't declare any of it on his taxes, he'll go to jail, right? Or or he could go to jail. Um, And so I I think that the, the, the problem is, is that a bunch of people, because of the stupidity of some of the arguments about this stuff from the mainstream media and the left are missing the fact that even if true, right, even if the facts are real in this and these emails are all legitimate, they don't actually point to the thing that that Donald Trump and his campaign are alleging, and the the, the sanctimony about all of it. And I'm not I'm not putting the editors in this this part of it, but you know this idea that. What Joe Biden did was so, so terrible, at least vis-a-vis this China stuff. The Burisma stuff is different, but there's also no evidence that Biden did anything particularly wrong there either. He didn't fire the prosecutor for Hunter Biden. That is a canard. Um, And, uh, you know, we went through all that with impeachment, so I'm just not going to dwell on it. Hunter Biden, sleazy guy, does sleazy things. He's a drug addict. He's a troubled dude. That's all fine. I'm entirely bought in on the idea that he was trying to sell influence he didn't have and trade on his name in ways that he shouldn't have. But the idea that um, Biden abused his office just is not true, even if you believe the allegation, every one of the allegations made by the Trump campaign or the New York Post, because he wasn't vice president at the time. And it is amazing me once you realize this and you start paying close attention, it is amazing how so many of these reports about this don't emphasize this really important fact. You know, you know, people keep saying, oh, this is going to plague Joe Biden year. You know, even if he's elected, he's going to be haunted by all of this. Why? He was a private, uh, according to their fact pattern, he was a private citizen who was doing something legal. What well, I'm sure it wasn't doing something legal. He's alleged to have been doing something that would have been legal if he had done it, but he hadn't done it, right? He didn't get the 10% of equity for the big guy, even if he was the big guy. And even if he had gotten the equity, it wouldn't have been illegal, except for maybe under like the FARA Act or something like that. But it wouldn't be um, some violation of his office because he wasn't in office. And so what the hell are we actually talking about with a lot of this stuff? By all means, let's criticize politicians who leave office for cashing in and doing shady stuff with foreign governments and and, and American corporations, for that matter. I mean, I I got briefs on Al Gore and the Clintons out the yin-yang. But look, I mean, Ronald Reagan, there was a big controversy about the time when he left office, he gave two two or three big speeches in Japan and made a boatload of money from it. It wasn't illegal. People thought it was kind of unsavory and all the, all that, but it was quickly forgotten because it turned out it really is not that big deal big a deal in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Ryan Lizard pointed out that George W. Bush, when he left office, he gave some speeches in China. Um you know, he wasn't locked up and nor should he have been. Uh, the Clinton Foundation stuff, super sketchy, definitely worth criticizing in part because that whole thing was in in many ways A charitable and philanthropic money laundering operation for a Clinton, for Hillary Clinton's presidential ambitions, and I think that's a little bit different. But the Clintons actually created the Clinton Foundation; they did that stuff. There is no evidence that Biden did any of these things. And I'm not some huge Joe Biden fan, but people are getting themselves worked up into this frenzy about how um, you know he sold his influence and was influence peddling, and there's just no nothing to support that that I've seen. Meanwhile. It's, you know, and again, I, I don't want to delve into whataboutism, but it's worth pointing out that you know, right now, the actual sitting president of the United States, who didn't put any of his interest in a blind trust, who makes money off the presidency in all sorts of ways, um, is the president right now. He's admitted. That he has a conflict of interest with Turkey because he has business interests there. He has business interests in China, um, and and so this this idea that somehow the laptop gate, whatever the hell that is, I mean, which really should be reserved for for Jeffrey Tubin, but the idea that whatever you know this 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 laptop thing is um, disqualifying of Joe Biden, I just don't I don't get how people can can leap that hurdle without explaining to me what the actual president of the United States is doing right now in office. And if you think what the president is doing in office right now, that is fine. I don't understand by what leaps of logic you can um, claim that, uh, you know, what Joe Biden is alleged to have tried to do but didn't do um, is somehow disqualifying. I just I find the whole thing weird. I think there is this like madness of crowds thing going on out there. It affects the left and the right in weird ways on this story. And um, I'm totally open to the idea that I'm missing something. Oh, well, one last thing, and I'll get off of this. I know I'm running long. Uh, I do think the Biden team's refusal to <laughs> respond on the merits to individual allegations is a legitimate thing for people to draw some inferences from. But one reason why they might be doing, I don't think it's because it, um, I don't think it proves he's guilty of something. Because again, I don't know what he's supposed to be guilty of. Um, But if you suspect that there's skullduggery afoot, right? If you suspect that there are things in that laptop that might be disinformation, um, or you just don't know what's in it, Once you open the door to saying this part's not true, then you are sort of subject to everything else that comes out of that thing. And as a political strategy, I can see saying, look, we're just not going to address this thing because if you put out a statement and then there's some new fact or alleged fact on this, this hard drive that contradicts what you said, then you're just in a a bigger mess. And, uh, you know, personally, I would prefer if Joe Biden gave me a lengthy press conference where he addressed all of this in great detail. I think that would be better for the country and better for him, particularly if he gets elected. Um, but as a political strategy, um, I think it's smart, even if as a even if it 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 prevents Biden from the kind of exoneration that he thinks he actually deserves in all of this. Um, and I think people are overreading that point of it too. And I, I wouldn't even got into it, but I mentioned that I would get back to it. So I got back to it. Um, all right. So I mentioned, uh, Jeffrey Tubin, and, um, you know, this is, this is something that I feel like I have to, uh, address in, in some family friendly, don't worry, but in some detail, I wrote about this again in the G file today. Um, and you know, I know that some of you don't want to get too deep into all of this stuff, but I think there's, you know, look, there's one thing that we can agree on that um, whether or not Tubin uh, should ever be allowed back on CNN or ever allowed to write for the New Yorker again, or ever involved in polite, invited back to polite society. Um, it seems to me that one thing, all decent people, um, regardless of their positions on these various issues can agree on, is that he would make a fantastic spokesman for ExpressVPN. Every day I read another story about how our personal privacy is being invaded. It's not just social media sites watching your every move. It's your smart speaker, your smart TV, maybe even your colleagues at The New Yorker, everything. Look, your data is your property. If companies that pay next to nothing in taxes are going to track what you do online and sell off your information, You should be compensated for it. And since you're not, then do the next best thing. Protect yourself with the same service that I use to keep my information safe, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts your internet data and hides your IP address so websites, hackers, and even your internet service provider can't track you. It's simple to download the ExpressVPN app, it is, I've done it, onto any of your devices. And it only takes one click. To turn on. That's it. I have ExpressVPN on a lot of the day to protect all my network data. It just runs in the background on my phone and on my laptop. Actually, I just use it on my laptop and on my iPad, but you get it. And it doesn't slow down my connection. Wired, CNET, and The Verge rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN on the market. And seriously, it is. It's less than $7 a month. And if you don't like it for any reason, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So protect your online privacy today with ExpressVPN. And because Remnant listeners are special, if you sign up at expressvpn.com/remnant, that's expressvpn.com/remnant, not dingo, you get the first three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. So that's e x slash s s vpn.com/remnant for three months free with one with a one year package. Visit expressvpn.com/remnant to learn more thanks to expressvpn for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant okay so on the tubin thing uh as he might have said um if you were a little more polite i'm going to lay it all on the table um uh i'm not a huge fan of jeff tubin uh i think going back to the The Walsh special counsel investigation. Uh, he's kind of a bad actor. Um, I mean, he's a nice enough guy personally and all that, but he's, you know, he's one of these guys I have some problems with. And um, and so maybe that colored my thinking a little bit about the 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 tubin thing. Um, but be that as it may, um, I, you know, I try pretty hard. I've talked about this, I write about this in the G-file, I've written about this before you know, I'm trying to model better behavior. Um, you know, as I've said many times in this podcast, I wrote suicide of the West the way I did, because I'm more interested in persuading people who disagree with me than just continuing the own the libs stuff. And, um, also I'm in middle-aged. I think I got to be a little more responsible. I started this new business. Um, and some of the wacky pull my finger stuff from yesteryear is just sort of less appropriate from a Fifty-one year old dude than it might have been from younger Jonah, but sometimes you just you, ju- you just can't turn away from a story like this. It was it was like for me it was it was it was it was like a weird hybrid between the Dan Rather memoGate stuff and the Anthony Weiner um, uh, Twitter stuff. It just you know I mean I couldn't resist it. And so I wrote this, uh, double entendre fueled, uh, G file for the midweek G file, which only goes out to subscribers. And, you know, there's part of the problem is that we just did this for members, this, and I mean, members of the dispatch community. Um, we just did this, um, uh, free, uh, gift certificate thing, gift subscription thing for some members. And so a bunch of people that was their first midweek G file that they ever read. Uh, some people got, you know, subscriptions for their mother, some people who had never really heard of me or had only been reading the G file for the last year or two. Um, and, or maybe came to the dispatch through, I don't know, David French's Sunday newsletter or something like that. They were a little appalled. And I understand that, um, as one guy in the comments, borrowing a phrase from a guy in the comments, Um, it, this has kind of turned into the tube and missile crisis in some ways. And, um, I just, you know, I'll be kind of honest about this. I, the G file has always been this weird thing, right? From the first days when I started in 1998, um, when it was one of the first political blogs, uh, to when it got revived as an actual email newsletter about 10 years ago or something like that. Um, the whole shtick about it, um, is that I just get to write whatever the hell I want, and um, in part because the voice of the thing is so—I mean, uh, intimate is kind of a creepy word in this context, but you know, it's the it's it's the journey as much as it is the destination with the G file because I write it stream of consciousness that kind of thing, and you cannot write stream of consciousness. Um, it's not like my syndicated column where I just have to come up with a column that is appropriate for newspapers across the country. The G file, you go wherever, you know, the muse takes you. And, um, and you know, the muse used to take me into some, you know, raunchier places than it does, uh, these days. But this was one of these things where it was just, it was too good to say no to. And I understand Kevin Williamson's point about how everyone's, um, making too big a deal about all of this kind of stuff and um, that's fine. I get the point, but I just thought it was too funny and um, and so I went with it and some people I got a lot of great feedback. A lot of people really enjoyed it, thought it was very funny. Um, but there were a bunch of people who were just like, you know my God, what the hell is this? sort of you know like what Jane Mayer said the other day and um, and so you know I do a lot less of that kind of stuff than I used to but, uh, you know, I can't promise that I'll never do that kind of thing again. Um, because sometimes I just think it's funny and, and, and so be it. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting when we first started the dispatch, I kind of offered to, to Steve, I was like, look, you know, look, we've got this idea. I'm all in, you know, for what the dispatch is about. And to be honest, you know, the rambling movable feast, Nature of the G file doesn't really fit with the larger um, editorial thrust of the dispatch. I mean we want all of the stuff we have to be you know either good or important or entertaining to the reader and hopefully all three um, and when I say entertaining that doesn't mean it has to be funny um, you know entertaining prose is just prose that is compelling and uh, and I think everybody here strives for, for that kind of product. And I think we, we hit more than we miss and, um, and we're dedicated to this, but you know, the women's prison, women's prison movie jokes don't perfectly fit in with, um, everything. And Steve was adamant. He was like, no, you don't understand the role a G G file has. And that, you know this is what people want, people will be mad if you didn't do it and blah 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 and yada 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 and um and he convinced me to do it. you know my wife is still mad at me and still will not refer to the midweek g file as the g file because she thinks that should be solely a thing for fridays um but anyway, if we're if you know as I wrote in today's g file um if we're really looking to assign blame um for for that G file, I think that, uh, w- we can all sort of settle on the fact that it was really Steve's fault. Um, but anyway, I, I, I will resolve to at least warn readers who don't like that kind of thing better than I did. I thought I kind of warned them, um, with the title and with the sort of forgive me for what is about to follow, um, in introduction, but I'll be more clear about it. You know, Kadoritz, I always, one of the things I always hated about the old weekly standard is that their parody page, they just called it parody. And, and John always defends it, um, saying, look, you don't understand if you don't tell people it's a parody, they'll think it's not a parody. And then we'll get all of this annoying blowback. And given how many times like Babylon B has been fact-checked by Snopes, I think John's kind of got a point, but, um. Um, I think that you know, maybe I have to be just more explicit, not in the tube in sense, um about what I am gonna do if i get gonna do that kind of thing in the future, and so maybe I'm making um too much of this, which is I'm going to ignore the double entendre I could find in that um so uh, what else is there to talk about? Well, I know I'm running long. So, I'll be really quick about this, um, which is another thing that Jeff Tubin could have said. Um, uh, the other day, I saw a tweet about uh, from Mark Cuban talking about how we have to get rid of the two-party system. And I replied that his uh, and he was all about how the parties are too strong. They have a duopoly, they have a stranglehold, yada, yada, yada. And I replied, as would not surprise close listeners of this podcast. That he's entirely wrong. And the problem with the parties is, is that they're too weak, not that they're too strong. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a two-party system. And um, um I thought that and so anyway, it, it occurred to me just the other day when people were replying to me about that. Um, I guess maybe it was yesterday, um, that there's a weird disconnect in the way that people talk about the way some people. Talk about the electoral college, and then also talk about the evils of the two-party system. Um, and I'm reminded there was a really good explanation about the electoral college on the Bradley Lecture Series um, a few months ago. I think it was by Alan Guelo. Gual- um, well, yeah. it was pretty good. It was a good explanation about the electoral college, and I can't, I can never pronounce Alan Guelzo's uh, last name, and I'm embarrassed about it. Um, and, but what brought that to mind was that uh, the Bradley Lecture Series has a new and great um, episode this week. And I want to talk to you about that as well. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, a Bradley speaker series, offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit Bradley FDN, as in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or as an abbreviation of foundation, so that's BradleyFDN.org slash Liberty, to watch their most recent episode, which features Justin Danhoff speaking on the dangers of shareholder activism. Danhoff is a general counsel for the National Center for Public Policy Research, as well as director of the center's free enterprise project. In this episode, he addresses the influence of environmental, social, and governance issues on society, retirement security, and free enterprise. The discussion sheds light on how activists are advancing social and political change through American corporations. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly. So go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so anyway, on this two-party thing, right? Um, I constantly hear from people who hate the Electoral College that uh, it is outrageous that presidents be elected without a majority of the vote. And I think that's wrong. Um I think it'd be better if presidents were elected with a majority of the vote, but I'm a defender of electoral college. We don't need to get in the weeds and all that. I've talked about that a bunch um but every now and then you see people who simultaneously believe that the electoral college is evil and that the two party system is evil as well and the the thing is if you got rid of the two party system and went to which is very difficult to do the way the constitution is structured, the way state laws are structured um but let's say you could do it, Uh, it would be more likely, let's say we could just go to like a parliamentary system. It would be more likely, not less likely, that our national leader would be elected with less than a majority of the vote, right? If you have multiple parties, you would have um, the vote divided up into multiple um, slices. And that's, you know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln got a plurality of the vote. He didn't get a majority of the vote. Bill Clinton got a plurality of the vote because, uh, Martian general Ross Perot took like, what was it? 19%. Uh, lots of times when you have more than one, uh, more than two candidates, you're going to have, um, plurality leaders, not majority leaders. Now that in and of itself does not bother me, but you got, you might want to think that through a little bit. And since I'm on the subject, um, You know, this idea that other nations around the world don't, um, don't have something like the electoral college is true as far as it goes, but it does not go very, very far at all. Um, most countries, most, most countries that we would like to consider our peers in terms of being democratically advanced constitutional free countries, uh, their national leaders, um, have some intermediating body or mechanism that translates popular votes in ways that, um, serve basically the same way the electoral college does. You know, the Angela Merkel was functionally elected by, um, various constituents to the buildings, blogging, blogging thing, whatever, um, they've, you know, in parliamentary systems, you vote for the party, then the parties meet and they appoint the, the prime minister. Now, obviously often the prime minister is the person who was running to become prime minister, but you're still mediating your votes through a party system in some way. And it is very common again, in, in, in multi-party systems for whoever is the, you know, ends up being the, the prime minister, um, to get less than a majority of the vote. and um, And I just think that there's this this romanticism about this idea that somehow uh, real legitimacy only derives from uh, raw, naked, popular vote totals when I think you get more legitimacy when you have the various stakeholders and institutions that are working within the political system to credentialize, filter, and legitimate um, politicians. And when you take all of that out and leave it entirely to uh essentially primary voters um and cable news watchers who can make up the plurality of the early voting um electorate, that's not better. That doesn't lead to better outcomes. But anyway, I'm a broken record on all of this stuff. Um uh one last funny thing. Um, a friend of mine sent me this. Um listeners probably know. I'm not a fan of V-Dare. It's this, uh, they don't want to call themselves a magazine or whatever, because they want to give their various contributors, um, at least this used to be their argument. I don't visit there at all. But, uh, since some of their visitors were outright, um, racists and nativists, um, saying terrible things, uh, it's, they have this fun fiction of how they're a consortium of independent writers or whatever but it's all hot garbage. And they were sort of alt-right before we had the term for alt-right. And, um, a friend of mine sent me this attack on Ramesh Panuru, uh, uh, Peter Brimelow, who's been running V Dare for a very long time. For those who don't know, Dare stands for Virginia DARE. And it's a, not a very subtle dog whistle. Virginia DARE was the first white European girl vor- born in North America or in the colonies or whatever. And, um, and you get, why they would find that the thing to name your, their website about it. Sam Francis used to write them. lots of people, not everybody wrote for them was a racist, you know, um, a lot of them were cranks, but, um, their, their tolerance for fever, swampy, alt-righty stuff, um, isn't, isn't just high. It's celebratory a lot of the time. And I assume it's only gotten worse, but again, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, Peter Brumelow wrote a piece called stupid party hacks, try to dump Trump Again." they will regret it again. Um, I haven't read it. I'm just getting that from the URL that a friend of mine sent me. But here's the two paragraphs that I think are funny. Uh, National Review, which quickly dropped its disastrous Never Trump disposition after November 8, 2016, is returning to form. Last week, senior editor Ramesh Panuru urged readers not to vote for Trump. Panuru likes Trump's policies and achievements, but, quote, His character flaws keep him from meeting the threshold conditions to be entrusted with the presidency. Unquote. Um, Now, before I read the second paragraph, they've hated Ramesh for a very long time. Uh, They would routinely, when they weren't referring to National Review as Goldberg's Review, um, another kind of unsubtle dog whistle given where it was coming from and given that I never ran National Review. um, uh, they They would often attack. Um Ramesh, because of his ethnicity um they would insinuate that he was an immigrant he's not um all of these sort of racist crappy little you know shots at him um the fact that he actually concentrated on uh immigration reforms that could actually uh see the light of day rather than fantastical immigration reforms that would make everybody look like Virginia dare um they particularly hated him um uh, because of all that. Anyway, so here's the second um the second paragraph. If only NR cared as much about the character of leftist of leftist TV talker Jeffrey Tubin, who was caught in a peculiar act of public onanism. Hipster Kevin Williamson thinks Trump's critics are, quote, right-wing howler monkeys, unquote. Um, and that's the piece I was referring to by Kevin Williamson earlier. Now, uh, I think this is hilarious for a bunch of different reasons um uh but the but the core of it is that I I can, I can reveal for the first time um for you dear listeners no one else has heard this before I have it on good authority that Ramesh Panuru is also against Jeffrey Tubin being president of the United States um And that's what I I kind of think is sort of funny about all of this is this, I, you know, this is the kind of argument you get from a certain deranged pro-Trump perspective that um, constantly, you know, for the first three years of the Trump presidency, I can't tell you how many people would tell me that, um, I remember there's one very famous donor. I don't want to out them. I was on a panel with this person, a big mover and shaker behind the scenes on the right. Um, and I was on a panel with this person and I'm, and we were all asked, you know, how's the Trump presidency going so far? And this person said, um, well, it's a mixed bag, something like that. I can't remember. But the thing I always keep in mind is it's better than Hillary. Now I get that point of view, but you know, this was a national review panel and this idea that somehow, um. The way National Review conservatives, or just serious conservatives in general, because you, you hear this same argument all over the place, should have as their measuring stick for the president, for a Republican president of the United States who has claimed the mantle as the leader of the Republican Party and the guy who basically defines what conservatism means for practical purposes for tens of millions of people, um, that the standard should be, well, better than Hillary. Is a real insight into the psychology of a lot of this stuff. I mean, I don't remember ever saying um, in the second Bush term, well, you know, this is, you know, Katrina wasn't great and, you know, Harriet Myers, ugh, but at least it's better than John Kerry. And, th- and, and, and I, th- I think this gives you some psychological insight into the insecurity a lot of people had. I mean, forget Brimelow here, that this kind of argument reveals in people who were really kind of embarrassed by, um, their vote for Trump and tried to come up with rationalizations that, um, superficially sound really persuasive. Um, I'm totally open to the argument that Donald Trump has been better than Hillary Clinton, but I utterly reject the argument that somehow, the conservative movement should redefine conservatism as simply marginally better than Hillary, and um, you found this kind of thing all the time. And and these, so, in, in, as as the Trump captivity has evolved, and people have come to own their support of Trump um, on the MAGA right um, in different ways, the argument becomes less "better than Hillary" and more like, you know, oh, you're you know, you're mad that Donald Trump said this, but what about the New York Times? And, you know, there is this insinuation or this assumption that somewhere, somehow, the New York Times is the bench, New York Times behavior is the benchmark of Donald Trump's behavior. I mean, it's sort of like if my, if I'm yelling at my daughter for, for doing something bad, you know, not picking up her room when I told her to or something like that. And she says, "Um, yeah, no, I know you're mad at me, but what about the toaster? Um, The New York Times isn't running for president, Um, but you sometimes could be mistaken to think that some of the people who think that their response to criticism about Donald Trump is to point out the shortcomings of the New York Times or the media um, or Jeffrey Toobin, um, that they don't completely understand this. Like there's some glitch in their brain that says their anger at an orange gives them permission to ignore the, the, the misdeeds of the apple. It's a very weird kind of thing, and um, I would love to find some psychologists who kind of explain it, because I run into it all the time. All right, anyway, I know I've rambled, and, um, and I know that some of the subject matter I discussed today will leave some people cold, and so be it. It is the nature of the beast, and I am done. So I will see you next time.